Sona and I are now going to attempt a conversation around this um, mysterious theme of of the bodhicitta. What is the bodhicitta? Why is it? Why do we keep talking about it? What's so important about the bodhicitta in our movement? Um, and you know, have we got any chance of ever getting anywhere near touching the tip of the moonlight of the bodhicitta? Uh, how would how would uh, we would be, we begin to deepen our practice so that the bodhicitta might arise. So I thought, I thought I'd just begin with um, mentioning a couple of, uh, or just one really, definition. Well, it's something that Sabuti has recently, uh, def- how he's recently defined the bodhicitta. He's talked about it as a suprapersonal force, a uh, uh, suprapersonal force. And he, he said it's a flow of ever increasingly selfless mental states that arise in dependence on dharmic, on a dharmic kind of conditionality, a flow of ever-increasingly selfless mental states that arises in dependence on a dharmic kind of conditionality. <coughs> and he said that the bodhisattva is one in whom the bodhicitta has become the dominant force and who therefore works spontaneously and selflessly for the benefit of all. So that's the sort of uh, ground we're looking at. The uh, the bodhicitta. Yep. So uh, so yeah, diving right into the deep end then. Mm-hmm. So now maybe I'll just start off by asking you. Yeah. So why do you think the bodhicitta is important to us in Tri Ratna? What is it about the this um, this uh, mysterious bodhicitta? Well, that's a big question, isn't it? <laughs> dive in the deep end. Um, I suppose I, um, well, I could, perhaps I have to talk from my own personal view um, because if you ask different people in Tree Ratna they might give all sorts of different answers but uh, I um, I think it, there's some of the other questions we're going to be dealing with of, about whether you, the, the bodhicitta can arise in an individual or is it necessary for it to arise in a group and so on are pertinent to this first question in a way Mm. Um, but I think the whole idea of um, um, bringing a sense of care of um, love of um, concern for other people um, is obviously part of the enlightenment experience you have pragna or wisdom on one hand and you have um, karana, compassion, um, and so forth. On the other hand, you can't have one without the other. So sometimes people think that insight is like seeing things as they really are. It may be, but at the same time that that happens, the great compassion happens. And what what one um, presumably does after you've had an insight experience is that you can't help but help others. It's just quite natural, but we're here not probably we're here probably because we're um, on the journey towards that point, that point of um, full insight. You know, if we if we weren't, we might be Buddhas or great teachers somewhere else, setting up some other sort of community. But we're here presumably because that's what we want to happen. We want to. We're interested in waking up and. Um, so I think the, the idea of evoking the bodhicitta, waking up to the bodhicitta, is a way of seeing our spiritual practice. And it, it 
for me, it really brings in the in other. You know, it's not all about me gaining enlightenment. It's all about. It's more about me in in um, in community, in connection with others, mm. that makes it possible. And I think for, for, that's why I'm here. Is that that's the only way I can see it really happening. Um, mm. But maybe I'll say a bit more about that in a moment. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I, I was on just thinking <clears throat> for me as well. It's been a way in which my practice has opened up in a way being aware that others exist uh, not only is it like the, sort of the purpose of one's practice to develop compassion but also it's through being with somebody else say for example in the metabhavana just bearing somebody else in mind as that they actually this person really exists just like I do they have thoughts and feelings and they you can see that they're upset or they're joyful and that somehow it's very, it's sort of humbling and it, it feels like it's more real. It, it is more real than my self-centeredness. Mm. It's sort of closer to wisdom. Mm. And so I've, I've, um, I've actually found, that's great in a way, isn't it? That, that what we're trying to achieve is also a means of achieving it, if mm. you see what I mean. So metta it really is a path to insight. And uh, so in a way it's, uh, and it's it's sort of, sort of it's a motivation too because friendliness is so important and connectedness is so important, and so it's it's almost like a means as well as an end and and uh, it just fuels the whole the whole path brings brings it brings in um, well it brings sorrow as well as joy actually doesn't it being with others but it just opens the heart makes everything bigger hmm. so I think that's important to think about too. Hmm. Um, yeah, so let's think a bit more about the bodhicitta. So Bounty's talked about it as, as uh, potentially arising within a, a spiritual community, more likely than with one person practising on their own. And I don't know if there's anything you'd like to... Any thoughts you've got about why that might be, Sona? Well, while, while we were sitting here reflecting, um, I, uh, I just had some thoughts come to me. Um, as one does and um, but it was actually um, something from Mitra Bandu's talk that I don't know how many of you uh, I wasn't actually at, at the talk but I watched it yesterday um, on the uh, on our centre's website and um, one of the things he mentions in it is a little story that he'd heard I think from Ratnaguna a Zen story about uh, I think it was about the Bodhisattva realising he'd been in a dream. Do you remember this, those of you here? He was in a dream and he woke up and then he was trying to tell everyone else um, they were asleep and they were dreaming. And uh, I, was, um, I knew this question was coming up and so it was, it was making me think about it. I was thinking, just imagine, right, imagine you're like a, a very unusual, special kind of person who wakes up without lots of other people. There you are, you've just woken up from a dream. And all around you, there's everyone else still dreaming. There's not just your family and your friends, but like, there's everyone. Every single person, thousands of people, millions of people. And there's you all alone. You're trying to shake them. and say, wake up, wake up. And they're all just saying, leave me alone. <laughs> all right, leave me alone. <laughs> and there's you, a bodhisattva, trying to wake up all these millions of beings... How, what a task. I mean, you know, it's not very attractive even, is it? <laughs> uh, the fact that you're there, the only one awake, and um, everyone else is still happily dreaming 
or not happily dreaming, because as life, so as dreams, life and dreams are up and down. And uh, we don't really know if we're dreaming or awake, but I think it's a, a useful metaphor. But if you imagine a group of us all making an effort, setting up the conditions, because we kind of, we've kind of got to a point where we're, we know we're dreaming, but we don't know how to wake ourselves from the dream. But um, we could perhaps say that we do know we're dreaming. Presumably that's why we're here. It's because we want to wake up to reality. And um, we could then keep reminding each other that we're dreaming. Like, hey, you're falling back into your dream. Come back here. You're almost awake, but not quite. And we're doing this all together. And isn't that much more beautiful? That's such a more, more beautiful idea, isn't it? For me, I, even though I'm, someone described me recently as a lonely wolf, um, <coughs> I think they meant lone wolf, but they were <laughs> <laughs> they were Swedish, so I could. Um, you know, but they called me a lonely wolf, and I thought that's quite nice, you know, lonely wolf. But um, you know, you only want to be a lonely wolf, but you do want to come into contact with others and. And I, I think that um, in kind of in a practical way and in a real way, we're here because we are um, trying to, to work together to keep ourselves awake and um, to, to wake up. So first of all, you know, the whole idea of just waking up on your own whilst everyone else is still sleeping is a bit terrifying for me. I just kind of feel so a, a real lonely wolf then, you know, just going to be going around trying to bite people awake, you know. And they just... You know, it's like, don't you, you talk to people that are not interested in, in the Dharma. They just say, leave me alone, go away. And mm. not, they don't want to know. But when you're with the Sangha, at least there's, a, there's this sort of feeling that, well, we do want to wake up. There is something we're missing out on important. Mm. Mm. But I would also like to mention something else that... Um, well, this is a bit of a monologue, but uh, just a couple of other things and I'll pass, yeah. pass back to you. But Maitre uh, Bandhu said... He said there was a danger that we see um, insight, for instance, um, as a commodity. And I think there's a danger of seeing bodhicitta as a commodity. We, we talk about it as the bodhicitta, and if we're not careful, we can think of it as my bodhicitta, and we can kind of take possession of it. I, I tend to see um, the spiritual life and the, 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 the dharmic processes as a bit more like gravity, a kind of regularity that we're trying to wake up to. We're trying to, um, you know, you could say, um, if you were to compare it to gravity, it might not completely work. It's a bit like all the time we're pretending, we're dreaming that we're flying. Actually, the reality is we, we're stuck on the ground, unless we're in an aeroplane, but then it's sort of like ground anyway. And um, But we've got this idea that we, you know, gravity doesn't affect us. And um, it's a bit like when you kind of realise that there is gravity, you go with gravity, you don't resist it. And um, that's why sometimes lying down is so, so, so re- refreshing, because you're kind of not standing up. And, you know, when you're standing up, you're constantly adjusting because gravity is pulling you down. But when you're lying down, you don't have to do anything. You can just lie there and let go into gravity. And I tend to see, see the spiritual, the Dharma, print the Dharma regularities of the you know, work in the universe is a kind of letting go into um, that spiritual force. I mean, even the word force is a little bit misleading because it's a bit like it's as though there is some sort of 
thing there. But if you think of it more like gravity, it's as though there is just a natural tendency for us to move in that direction. What we're doing most of the time is resisting it because we're happy with our dream. And we think if we can just fix the things in our dream, we'll be happy dreaming. We don't really then want to wake up. And that's when we really need people to wake us up when we're happy, actually. When we're sad, of course we want to wake up from the dream because it's a nightmare. But uh, when we're happy, that's when we often have to be reminded that we don't want to settle down. So we do need each other, and it is a danger of seeing the bodhicitta as a thing and, take, and sort of trying to grasp it as a commodity, because that's what the human mind does. It tries to take hold of and possess and make, it, make our own um, chitta, uh, even the bodhicitta, the idea of the bodhicitta. And what's so good about all this is that you can't do that. That's the whole message the whole time. It's like a lamp that's been lit, you know, and the, the light is just going from one lamp to another lamp. And it's just light. And you could call it my light, but it's sort of just light. And you don't think of light as belonging to anything or anyone, do you? Just, it just shines. And I, I like to think of the Bodhicitta like that. Mm. Maybe you've got some things you'd like to comment on that. <laughs> it's very beautiful. <coughs> Yeah, and I was thinking lots of things during all of that, but uh, when you were talking about dream, and because I, I was thinking about how we inspire each other and how important that is, you know, the way we're actually, um, we, we have inspiration and we have our, we have, maybe we have quite a deep feeling for going for refuge, but somehow, somehow we can lose it so easily. And mm. it's almost like that's a, that is a dream, that's a sort of positive dream or even a myth, uh, and that it's so easy to, um, I guess sometimes we sort of lose the edge of it because we don't really take it seriously and we don't do ourselves justice even in by sort of... Uh, we have a, maybe have an urge to practice in some sort of way and we maybe make a resolution, you know, and then we sort of lose lose it. We lose the inspiration in it, lose the edge of it and we don't do our dream justice, our, our myth justice. Uh, but then it's it probably is... Uh, uh, times when we're with other spiritual practitioners... Particularly, I think in a committee group, so maybe like a Dharma study group or a chapter, order chapter or a GFR group, and you sort of with people you know they sort of know what your resolution was, and uh, for example, and you know they might ask you how it's going. If we're on our own, on our own practicing, there's nobody who's going to ask us how that resolution is going. Um, and somehow it's, it's a bit awkward being asked about your resolution, isn't it? Because you sort of think, yeah, you actually that res- oh yeah, that resolution. You mean that one <laughs> that I made yesterday? <laughs> Or last week, or whatever it was, and uh, well, they're asking you because your friends are asking you. They because they want the best for you. They're encouraged. They're, anyway, they they're not just being critical and saying, "Oh yeah, there you there you go again, losing your that, that resolution." They're actually this is sort of a, they're lifting you up somehow and encouraging and giving a bit of energy to maybe rediscover what was important to you and why why you decided to do that. Uh, there's just such a lot about um, I think practicing and. It, Maybe having a committed group of people that's um, I've found, you know, really uh, uplifting and just reminds me and helps keep me going. Um, and an, I suppose another example has been when I've been in a chapter, and I've somebody's just, uh, well, maybe it's just been a, bit, a little bit mundane. You sort of you do it every week and you sort of turn up and you're thinking, gosh, I wonder what time is this going to end? I really want to go off to that theatre or whatever it is and. Etc. And but then, so you're sort of sitting there, not being totally wholehearted and not really giving your best to it. And then somebody says, "Well, I want, I need to make a confession." Uh, and so you, you know, in a way, you bit you sort of 
you know, wakes up a bit to be with that person and they make that confession uh, and they're being really sincere and honest and it is mm. just very humbling and opening and you feel something in yourself just meet that and rise to it. And you can feel the whole atmosphere in that group. Everybody's becoming a bit more awake and a bit more alert and a bit more in touch with their own mm. their own vision. And in, in a way it's surprising <clears throat> because somebody's telling you something maybe unskillful that they've done and yet it has such an uplifting effect and it just shows how interconnected we all are really or can be in our practice mm. if we share something very sincerely and openly with each other like that. And I think those have been some of my experiences of something like the bodhicitta in a sense. Like I'm so sure it's a glimpse of the bodhicitta, hmm. a sort of purity of aspiration that's, that's felt collectively at that moment. And I imagine all of us have perhaps felt moments like that in, in uh, shared with one-to-one or with a group of people. Just when we feel of the purity of our uh, wish to... Um, I don't know, open to the highest in our, ourselves, perhaps, or to something a bit more true or sincere or authentic. Uh, it's very, very beautiful. And there's a sort of just maybe a quiet sense of sharing that with other people. Mm-hmm. That sort of experience. I don't know. I think it's, maybe it brings it a, bit more, a little bit more down to earth, but in a, there's a very beautiful sort of down to earth quality that, mm-hmm. yeah. It can, I know it can, it's often talked about as arising in really big situations too, like. Uh, say, well, I suppose my, another experience I've had has been in an enormous um, pujas on order conventions. Maybe you've got six hundred order members, and uh, you just just don't know them, don't know those people. But there's a sense of there's a few people that you know. There's this very strong sense of something shared, a very strong momentum of focus towards the Buddha, or the Three Jewels, you know, sort of respect and love for Bante or whatever it is. Um, that is a very it's a very powerful cohesion that goes far beyond the differences. Mm. Maybe that's part of it. A, a, a sort of connectedness to vision that just differences between people just can drop away. And therefore maybe our self-reference drops away in a sense. Because self-reference has so much to do with perceiving ourselves as different to others and special and uh, separate and uh, sometimes right and sometimes wrong. Likes, dislikes. But in the midst of something much bigger, that can drop away, can't it? And mm. It's that's a very beautiful thing. Mm. Yeah. You, uh, yeah. Maybe you'd like to share. Well, I was looking at the other, the next couple of questions, and I kind of think you've been answering those. <laughs> Which ones? Conditions. Um, <clears throat> what might it look like? And yeah, uh, what's yeah. the next one? The uh, what might it? Uh, have you had any experiences? Yeah, I was yeah. Yeah, yeah. getting into that. Really. So I think, in a way, that you, you've been talking a bit about that, of what it might might be like. Mm. And, um, and I, I, I could relate, you know, say something in, in a similar vein, that mm. um, I tend to think of it as that experience, that, that example you gave, where maybe you want to go to the theatre, so you had your idea of reality for the evening... You know, your idea was going to be going to the theatre, maybe meeting a friend, you're going to watch a play, and you're going to have a very pleasant time. But someone comes up to you and they have a need. You know, it could be a confession. It could be just they need someone to, to talk to because they're in a little bit of a state. Or, and you recognise that that person needs your help and you can give them that help. And maybe it's just they need that comfort or they just need an ear, you know, to someone to talk to. And it's that moment where some, it's as though another part of you takes over where you give up the theatre or you're prepared to give up the theatre. You know, maybe at first you're thinking, all right, well, I'll give them a few minutes, 
and then maybe we can get it sorted and I can then, you know, get in a taxi and get to the theatre. But um, at some point you kind of realise that's it, that reality is changed. Like, I could either go to the theatre and leave this person um, with their problem, but you don't, do you? You know, you, 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 you kind of, something else moves in you where you just kind of become bigger than what you were. Like, your interests um, become more become less important. Obviously, if you're going to meet a friend at the theatre and they're going to worry about you, you've got to sort that out. But if it was just a simple case if you were going to go there on your own or something, um, and you, you could let go of that. And it's where you don't even sort of like... At first, this is my experience when you talk about it, my experience is there's a resistance to do it, like because I want the reality that I thought was going to happen. But now that there's a new reality coming in, and at some point you let go. And when you let go, it's easy. You're just like, the theatre's gone, and now you're responding to this person. And you kind of forget about yourself, don't you, in that moment where you're really listening, you know, with kind of deep listening. You're not trying to solve that person's problems. You're just allowing them to talk and express and um, be in communication with you. And I would say that is the, the, um, the, the Dharma, the Bodhicitta, these processes at work is as though one is um, being transformed by a different kind of process that's going on within you. Um, and it can feel like, sometimes it can feel like a force from outside. As Sabuti describes, well, he doesn't describe, he interviewed Banti, and Banti described how he was often sort of kind of taken over by a... Uh, a suprapersonal force, you know, when he when Dr. Ambedkar died and, and there are other occasions where he just did what needed to be done. And he said it was as though it wasn't him who was doing it. And sometimes if you're giving talks on the Dharma, you actually feel that. Even if you're talking to a friend, you know, you don't have to be standing in front of a class. But you sometimes wonder where things come from. You think, well, why did I say that? I never thought that before. And it's as though some sort of new thing has come into being and just gets expressed through you. It's as though one is quite happily being taken over by something. And um, and I I suspect we've all had that experience. And we can can sort of um, make it such a big thing, like, oh, yeah, it would be wonderful to have that experience. But I'm sure we've all had that experience for moments. But probably what we haven't had is it for a continuum Hmm. you know where it just goes on and on (laughs) like if you can imagine always being like that where you do do things for yourself of course you need to but more and more you're less bothered about dropping some of the things that you were going to do because you see the needs of others And, and as human beings you do have to satisfy the human needs that you have to stay alive to stay healthy and so on so you have to factor all those things in to be of service to others so so I, mm, I think mm. it's kind of what it's like, really, is that... And you don't do that on your own, do you? You can't... I can't think of... You know, I could see maybe that some, the garden needed clearing, but that's because the garden belonged to someone. Or sometimes I can see something in nature needs looking after. But in the back of my mind, there are people somehow. It's not just about... Or life. You know, I'm caring about life, really. Right. Like big birds and insects and so on so you're kind of protecting things and you just do these things because 
you care. And, uh, and there's a difference between that and what um, Maitre Bandy mentioned this thing about. Was it called um, sentimental emotion? So you're not doing it for approbation. You're not doing it for people to, to, to give you the feedback. Oh, that was a good job you did, picking up the litter in the, in the woods and things. When I saw you did that, oh, that was really good. Yeah. You just pick up the litter because it could be damaging to the wildlife um, and for no other reason. It's sort of, that's what's moving you. So I think on the one hand, one shouldn't see these things as being too far away, but to have a, a, an experience of it as it's continually happening that's probably a bit beyond our imagination even, let alone um, you know, thinking it can happen in three years, as much as Bandu did mm. when he was young. Mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah. What about your experiences? Mm. Yeah, I think I mentioned a couple <coughs> earlier on. I was just thinking, thinking about that, about the, uh, Bandu talking about the path of regular steps and that uh, probably in a way we, as we, if we do continually practice on the spiritual path, we do become more integrated and more able to um, know ourselves, don't we? And there's more deeper meta for ourselves, which in a way is the same as sort of meta for life, isn't it? Mm. And uh, so we get these, maybe you get these flashes of times when we're less self-referential and able to mm. really let go in that way. And perhaps they become more and more part of us. Maybe they're not so unusual. Like they're really, perhaps when we have a real unselfish moment, it comes and it goes again, but actually there's something a little bit deeper that's changed by that, and that deeper that deeper sort of reservoir of um, uh, I don't know of a sort of more fulfilled self that hasn't got to insist on itself. Maybe that can just get more and more um, a bit stronger and uh, mm. gradually becomes. I guess over time that becomes the sort of decisive, the decisive aspect that's as as we we become more secure, I suppose, in our beings. <coughs> And uh, yeah, remember that uh, it's always been very helpful that Bhante has talked about the uh, in the Bodhisattva ideal. Uh, it's not self as a, it's not others as opposed to self. Uh, it, there's a sense in, in which um, we don't sort of treat ourselves badly because we're looking after others. Mm. It's a bit like this. So it's actually it's a real meta towards mm. ourselves as equally living beings as others that that the Bodhicitta is about. It's not about sort of putting ourselves down, is it, or aside no, or anything. No. It's making sure that we satisfy those natural needs in life of having, mm. you know, someone we can talk to when we we need to, and uh, um, mm. food, oxygen, all the all the natural things, all the psychological things, emotional things. We need all these things to mm. to function. Otherwise, we kind of um, we probably are doing things more through sentimental um, emotion. You know, we, we think we ought to be helping others. Mm. And if we start looking at why, we might notice behind it, we, we're looking for approval. You know, we maybe just need feel we need approval because we're not getting the kind of feedback, the connection that we naturally need as human beings. So we, do, we have another strategy for it, and that strategy is to do good, be a good doer. But it's... Um, it's not going to work in the long run because we're not really looking after ourselves correctly. We're dependent upon others. So we need to be both independent, so we're looking after our own needs and making sure we get those needs satisfied, but at the same time opening our hearts and opening out to, to other people and trying to be as honest as we can about why we're doing it. Maybe initially it's fine to do good, good 
you know, to, to help other people if we're a bit mean and a bit self-centred, it's probably a good step to take. Um, but one wouldn't want to do it too long because you could just get lost in being a, a good doer, you know, a, a helper of others. But actually, at the end, it's, it's, very, um, it's very conditional. It's very conditional on people giving us the right feedback. Otherwise, we get resentful, don't we? we always helping people, no one praises us. Mm. We can tend to feel, mm. well, you know, a bit resentful for the fact that people don't don't give us the right feedback. You know. They don't notice how They don't pay us enough money. You know. <laughs> <laughs> That's why sometimes people have problems with wages, because uh, wages are seen as a way of show, uh, being shown appreciation. It's not that we need so much money, but often, you know, if we don't get the kind of level of money that we... Uh, expect for the sort of um, work we're doing we feel we're not being appreciated mm. and so it's a kind of a whole load of um, we're very very dependent upon all those conditions whereas what we're talking about really is just being able to get ourselves in a good state find our own support and so on making sure we know what we need and as we know what we need we also know what other people need because we're no different from others you know, we, we notice what our needs are and we know other people have got those needs and we can help them to wake up to those needs and, and, mm. and find them. Do you think we yeah. should move on to some of these other yes, questions? Yes, let's, let's do that, shall we? Yes. Yeah. <clears throat> so um, we may not cope with all the questions. Um, so we're looking at the next whole series about the conditions that give rise to uh, the bodhicitta. Uh, so, yes, do you want to say something about what those conditions might be, Sona? Shall I give you a clue by reading this line here (laughs) yeah so we we, um yeah Subhuti and Bandi have talked about intensity uh so intensity of of what though intensity of practice what does intensity mean here in terms of um yeah creating conditions for the bodhicitta to arise okay I I could ask you some questions here (laughs) (laughs) Uh (laughs) uh-oh okay so uh, let's go back to the the, the little example you brought in about going to the theatre and someone mm. needs to talk to you. Mm-hmm. And uh, I know you're, you're more likely than me. If, you, if someone, you see someone coming towards you and you know, they look a bit upset, you, you're probably thinking, oh dear, I, I can imagine you would start moving towards them. I might sort of think, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> there goes the theatre. Mm. <laughs> can I avoid this person? <laughs> And um, but you kind of got an option, haven't you? When that happens, do, what, what happens with you? You see this person coming towards you. Do you do you have, do you experience a conflict a little bit in you? Well, it, it varies. I guess if the theatre was in my my uh, next uh, line of um, action, there would be a small conflict. <laughs> yeah, I suppose I would. What would I do? I would. Um, yeah, because that is a, that could be a little bit intense, couldn't it? Maybe I'd think. You know, who else can talk to this person? (laughs) 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 Sona, for example, yes. (laughs) I'd ring up Sona. (laughs) Get him round. (laughs) I think, yes, I think because, uh, yeah, I've got a bit of a history of maybe, um, yes, not perhaps sort of being a bit on overly visionary side and not sort of bearing in mind my own needs Mm. enough. So that's been what I've had to do over many years is, uh, and what I'm doing a bit more now at the moment, Mm. actually, is just trying to, be aware of myself as a human being with human needs and that, um, that I can't just override 
them through sort of just visionary. So, so it sounds like you probably yeah. need friends around you who say, look, you need to go to the theatre. I'll, I'll do yeah, this I get, Yeah, that's right. I need friends to say, <laughs> OK, Diane, do you have a day off tomorrow? <laughs> that's right, yeah. So, and <laughs> if, if you don't have those people around you, what's, what are you likely to do? Um, yeah, I can, I can get a bit stressed and... Uh, that's right. Sort of, I lose touch with myself. I think yeah. probably if I get a bit too overly, I get overly responsible. Then I get anxious. Then I think it has to be me that sorts it all out, and all of that happens. So that would be intense, wouldn't it? That would be an intense situation. That is intense. That is but, intense. I enjoy working with other people, partly because I feel as though I almost immediately feel less responsible. But anyway, I sort of feel it's shared. But I, I think if you're on your own, I think you have the wrong, the wrong, the wrong type of intensity. Because you kind of take it all on as though it's your your problem, mm. um, but uh, there's another type of intensities where you you're just together all the time. First of all, you're surrounded by people who might be having needs that you could meet. Mm. So mm. you can't, you know, like in my case, I might see someone who looks as though they need a bit of um, help, and I think, oh, well, there's lots of other people here. I'll just slip out and go off to the theatre. Um, and you can do that, you can get away with that if you're kind of on your own. But if you decide to be part of a, a group, part of a project, let's say, where you're actually working together and you're doing things, you actually can't get out of it, can you? You're actually be putting yourself in a situation where those problems, those difficulties are coming towards you. Mm-hmm. And one of the dangers is, if you have Dianandi's temperament, is that... Uh, you might overdo it and go towards burnout if you carry on. So you need people around you. If you've got my temperament, which has got a thermal cutout switch, like when it gets too hot, I just stop. Um, or as Vidyamala says, you know, if I see a difficulty coming towards me, the first thing I do is lie down and take a rest. <laughs> <laughs> I think I need a bit of that. <laughs> That's a good idea. But actually, I've, I've found I'm, in some ways I need to do both things. I need to be more fully responsible and also not over-responsible. Hmm. So I've noticed like being Mitch Convener now as well, it's like obvious to me that, and, and in terms of befriending people over the years as well, I've noticed a tendency to think, um, I have to solve this, and or hmm. that they're, they're suffering, I'm, I, it's up down to me to do something. And uh, I, so I've had to, it's been intense for me to sort of think to myself, actually, no... Uh, just just stay with that uncomfortableness. You can't really you can't sort it. You can't do it. It's their life. So that's been a. Hmm. I suppose that's a sort of wisdom, isn't it? Or yeah. just trying to really. Yeah. That's be on the one hand, but on the other <coughs> hand, I can see myself not really wanting to face someone else's situation and be there in it with them. And in a way, I suppose it's that sort of rescuing thing, hmm. which is a way of avoiding really being with somebody, isn't it? Hmm. As well. So something yeah. about really taking responsibility is actually just really being with somebody um not evading my experience my pain in relation to their pain mm. trying to mm. stay with my pain uh, my my discomfort or sadness at their situation uh, and then it was, so that's being really responsible i think mm. and and then seeing what arises between us mm. and not trying to because my i, I will get, i'll get all these strategies and plans and stuff and uh that sort of sorts them out, and then I think, oh, they're fine, I can go off now. But actually, it's not to do with them being sorted, is it? It's somehow it's more to do with mm. the two of us, and if it is the two of us, or the mm. group of us, and what arises from just being with it. I think we're just being with that situation. Mm. 
Good. <laughs> oh, I feel approbation now. <laughs> <laughs> we've just got, um, if we're keeping the schedule, we've just got a few more minutes. Okay. Should we just choose a question? <clears throat> well, I was going to say, um, which question that wasn't there, and I mentioned it to Dynandi before, is that why, why is the uh, puja helpful in, in creating this, this kind of experience together? I, I found that a really interesting question, which I'd like to like to consider. Is that all right? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had a little discussion before. Well, obviously, it's something we do collectively. We can do a puja on your own, but um, there is something about doing a puja with other people, isn't there? I don't know if you've done a puja on your own and done it with others. It's something quite a um, big difference. And if you do it with like lots of other people and you're all very focused and tuned in, um, you, you kind of become sensitive to something that's um, more than the parts. Some years ago, many years ago, I was a Guruji Loka on a, a, um, an ordination course and there we had... Uh, Vipla Kerti there, who's a choir master, and he got he formed a little choir and got singing. And I've never sung before in a choir, but I like singing. And um, I had an experience while, while we were singing some talis. I mean, it took a lot of practice to get this experience, but at some point there was this feeling that I was in touch with something that was more than the sum of the parts. And this is how Banti has described the... Um, the, the bodhicitta in a way, or the, the dharma. So, so something comes into being that is more than the sum of the parts of what's going on. Something new has come into being. And when you do a puja and you create the right conditions, it doesn't always work, just as when you're singing, it doesn't always feel like this experience of something greater than the parts comes about. But when you practice and you do it enough, you, it can, you can have that effect as though you're in touch with something which is mysterious, indescribable, and it's not even a thing, but it's a, it is part of your experience where you're both aware of yourself, you're aware of others, you're aware of the words you're saying, the atmosphere, the heat, the cold, all those things. And in addition, you're, in, in a, you're aware of something else that's going on. And... Um, <clears throat> I think the puja is an excellent way, um, a situation for creating this. Um, why? Because it's kind of non-rational. You're not sitting there thinking about all the words you're saying. It's poetry, you're getting up, making offerings, you're chanting. It's evoking your imagination. This is a whole new faculty which we don't often use and which is so undervalued in our society is being allowed or being... Um, supported to open up and um, as we develop this faculty <clears throat> so we kind of wake up we become, at least we become more aware that we're dreaming and that we have choices in our dreams I don't know if you ever dream like this where you realise you've got ethical choices do you ever do that? You know, where you're just about to shoot yeah. someone because you think that'd be the easiest way you know, if, if someone's bothering you think I'd just shoot them and that would be the end of it but then I, I have those dreams, and I think if I just shoot them, that, that, that'd be over. Then I think, well, that'd be unethical, and I can't shoot people, so I have to then replay the dream, not shooting them. I have those dreams. But I, maybe I'm more awake than most people. But you, know, so, <clears throat> but you can have these dreams, and um, 
And it's a bit like that thing when you're doing the puja, when you're becoming more aware of, of something that, that's greater. And so it's difficult for many people in the West, I think, to do puja. It's easier in the East, and you see people in India, they just have a natural um, capacity for feel devotion towards things. But I think we have such a... We've overvalued so much our critical faculty, our rational faculty. We don't even know how to switch it off. And it's, it's not that it's a bad thing, it's a good thing, but it's, over, it's kind of overworked. And we don't know how to switch on the other faculties, particularly imagination. And um, we can be quite emotional, obviously. We all know how easy it is to be emotional. But actually to feel something um, of a deeper nature... Um, to contact something on a deeper level is more difficult. So I think the puja is is um, is so undervalued and so um, it's so difficult for many people in the West. Pro- probably not for you <coughs> here in this room, because you know this is a weekend of puja, um, and that's why you you haven't got resistance to coming. If it, if um, you had a resistance, you think, oh, weekend of puja is the last thing I want to go to. I'll go to the theatre, go for a walk or something. <laughs> So, um, but that's why I, I, I think it's quite interesting, actually, to to think of that and to think of all the things that we do collectively as being kind of having this experience of being like in a choir or an orchestra, where we're all playing together, we're all playing our little part in a in a work of mm. music. We're doing our own little thing. We're watching the lines totally concentrated, but we have to be aware because if we lose awareness, we play in the wrong moment. We don't. Sudden, we don't come in if we're playing an instrument. We don't come in at the right moment. We're not watching the conductor. And there's a lot to do, isn't there? I've never played an instrument, but I watch people go to concerts and I watch. And, you know, the, the um, musicians are reading the music, they're looking at the conductor, and they're listening to the music, and they're probably adjusting their seat, you know, to, to make sure they're comfortable. All those things are going on, and it, like they're completely absorbed in it. And you can sometimes see when they're not. You know, you can see the kind of like look of boredom. They put their instrument down. They kind of it's as though they zoned out a little bit. But when they pick up their instrument and go back in, it's as though they zone in again, and they're part of this thing. And it's not just puja. I think working together, creating projects together, um, they're all just examples of shared experience that we we can have. And that is where the bodhicitta is really most likely to mm. um, emerge. Hmm. And I'd just, <clears throat> just end maybe by well, thinking that the uh, these shared experiences of working together, being together in pujas and teams and meditations, retreats, whatever, where it's us as individuals being part of a collective <clears throat> situation, isn't it? Hmm. And so that's really crucial that that we're being as individual as totally individual. I think that's one of the really amazing things that when Bounty talks about the spiritual community, a real spiritual community uh, consists of people who are, um, well, the more the more individual we are, the, the more able we are to be co- truly collective, something like that, that we're not actually giving ourselves up, we're being our full selves mm-hmm. by being as transparent as we can with each other, as open as we can with each other, this really hearing each other's differences and the way we practice is very different. Uh, and it's just very can be very joyful just to be as in, let ourselves just expand into our individuality at the same time as um, mm. sharing that with others. And I guess that is the collective. That's a, in a way that's the vision for the spiritual community is true individuality within within that um, 
sense of shared understanding and shared vision. <coughs> um, and just at the more situations we can create where we can just sort of know each other to be like that is, is, is that the better really. And that's where I think a powerful Sangha is that. That's what it is. Hmm. Like that. Yes. This, the Sangha is just completely inspiring. I suppose I was, so I was thinking actually, anyway, that was just a little thought I had that perhaps because I can get a bit bored during pujas, but actually, um, little admission. Uh, but the Sangha of Astus, I'm very inspired by the Sangha of Astus, which we've studied during the week. And actually, the generosity, kindly speech, beneficial action, exemplification. If I thought of practicing them during a puja, I'd probably feel more engaged, and mm. I could be more, I could be generous, I could really be here, and um, I could uh, just be really aware of my speech. And I, I think I need something like that to help me engage sometimes with a puja, because mm. I can get a bit overly rational and cut off probably. The press has come. <laughs> yeah, so anyway, let's uh, bring our conversation to end. Thank you, Sona. Thank you. Very, very much. Well, and, Andy. Uh, yeah. <clears throat>